0: This is episode number 188 of the Rising Man podcast with Jesse Simpson. No man is broken or in need of being fixed. What is up, Rising Man family? Jetty Azuma here checking in behind the mic today. I've got another amazing guest on the show. Before I get into that, I want to encourage each and every one of you to head over to risingman.org slash ignite. We have our 12-week online program designed to help you launch into the next stratosphere of your development as a man. We're working with developing your values, clarifying your purpose, and giving you the tools and skills and distinctions to effectively take your life to the next level. This, to me, is the compilation of 10 years in the work that I've done myself, that I've squeezed into a 12-week course to give you the best of the best of the best that I've found on my journey to becoming a man. So head over to risingman.org slash ignite, check it out, get yourself signed up today and take that leap, that next big leap into this community. All right. Today's guest is Jesse Simpson. He is a former U.S. Marine and firefighter with a master's degree and a passion for helping others overcome adversity and take action towards their dreams. He is a transformational coach skilled at helping people overcome loss, trauma or transition and hosts transformative travel experiences in Colombia. During these week long retreats, combining adventure travel and plant medicine, he helps you to heal from your past, step into your power and find your purpose. In this episode, Jesse shared his journey into a life of service and purpose. We began by hearing Jesse's version of what it means to be a man, a life defined by service. We talked about rewriting the narrative of being broken and why this subtle shift in psyche is essential for growth to occur. What happens when purpose is removed? Jesse talked about a veteran's journey and what happens when purpose and connection are taken away, creating a void that must be filled. Jesse also spoke about learning to be a victim as a veteran and claiming disability, how this propagates isolation and victimhood. He also introduced the concept of secondary gain, which effectively eliminates the incentive for growth. Lastly, Jesse shared why we must learn to navigate our inner worlds and develop our emotional intelligence and connection with self. This and so much more, but without further ado, Jesse Simpson. All right, rising man family. I've got another fantastic man joining me here today, Mr. Jesse Simpson coming in live from Lakeland, Florida. Good morning, good afternoon to you, bro. How are you doing? Jetty, it's great to be here. Life is good on the East Coast. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, is it is it muggy and humid and sweaty over there in Florida?
1: It depends who you ask. You know, I'm we're coming <laughs> from Arizona where it's like, you know, 115 in the summer, but Here, it's like 90, a little bit more humid. just depends on what you like, but I enjoy the heat.
0: Yeah. You're probably like a cactus coming out of the desert, just soaking (laughs) up all that moisture into your pores. And I know my wife, when she says that every time we go somewhere humid, it's it's her hair and her skin gets really happy about all that. And I don't really notice the difference too much. (laughs) Yeah. My hair stays the same pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, You're not worried about that. (laughs) Wonderful, man. Well, I appreciate you joining today. You know, the folks will hear a little bit more about you when in the intro, when we record that, but your resume is impressive being a veteran, being a first responder, service provider, and, and now all the amazing work that you're doing for those folks coming out of those experiences like you had. I'm really looking forward to getting into that and sharing more of your story with the men and women who'll be listening. So before we jump into that though, let me ask you for context purposes, what do you believe it means to be a man?
1: To be a man, to me, means to serve and to stand, to serve our family, a community, a cause. And to stand is to defend, to protect, to strengthen those that we serve so we can make sure that our tribe, the people we are here to, to serve, are taken care of and provided for.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, have you read a, this book called Tribe by Sebastian Younger? Yeah, like three times. Okay. All right. So, so then for for anyone who hasn't read it, read it. It's a really quick read. You could probably sit down and read it in a few hours at, at most. One of the things that really stands out in that book that I was just reminded of by what you said is this implicit, instinctual desire that we have to serve our community and to band together. And Taking his words and extrapolating from it, I think it's a reflection of how, as we become larger and larger societies of more and more people, we are naturally more and more disconnected Here we are in the United States. We are a nation of 380 million people versus a small village community of 50 to 100. So there's more separation, but the the desire and the instinct within us to band together and to serve a common cause is still there. So he talks about when he was a, a teenager, I believe, or a young, maybe an adolescent, where he had this almost alarming desire for chaos to break out simply so that he could band together with other people. And I really resonated with that. I remember wanting, having that feeling, craving that some sort of catalyst that would pull myself and the people around me more together because of that you know, desire to be in community. And I didn't really know what I was experiencing when I was a kid, but there was that. And so I hear you in what you're saying about being a man, this stepping up and serving. I, th- I think it's at our, at the, core nature of who we are. And so many men are struggling to find that. And being a veteran yourself and, and someone who was in in first responders and services and firefighting, all, all these different capacities, can you talk a little bit more about your pursuit of that and how you found that in in the armed forces and in the other ways you've served?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think as coming off of what you talked about, that sort of event that triggered The coming together of the people. To me, that was 9 11. I was in seventh grade on 9 11, and I was a a really troubled kid. I got in trouble all the time, kicked out of my house for fighting, smoking weed, cussing out teachers, all these sort of things. But it was that event, September 11, 2001, that made me, for the first time in my life, realize that something bigger is happening here. That people, I saw the firefighters go into the World Trade Center with complete disregard for their own safety, for for anything. They they just went in to help complete strangers. And then you see the buildings collapse and you know they're not coming out. And it just shifted something inside of me to stop so much focusing on myself and 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 feeling sorry for myself and causing so much trouble. And it put me on this trajectory to want to be a marina firefighter. And I don't have those words, but it was like this this call to serve something larger than myself. And it came from 9-11. And, you know, I think that's the catalyst for a lot of growth, a lot of transformation, or a lot of the stuff we need really in the world. It comes from pain, it comes from suffering. It, it forces us out of the darkness into whatever it is we're here to do. I cleaned it up just enough to graduate early from high school and join the Marines. And in the Marines, I, you know, I met my brothers, and that's the tribe, the community. I mean, the book Tribe is about his, a lot of it is about Sebastian Younger's. Time with, I believe, an army units embedded in Afghanistan. You know, when you go through these things with these people where you're, you know, you're you're training for weeks on end in the desert, you're you're not getting enough food, you know, you're you're traveling around the world, you're seeing all these different things, and you're really becoming in in a way a man. There's just a bond that can't be broken in that sort of brotherhood, in that container that is the military. And it's what I think a lot of misguided youth, at least for me as a misguided youth, what I needed to get over myself, to come together, to find you know, that even if I am broken, I'm with a bunch of other broken misfits and all these sort of different people that we're all working towards this common goal. And when we work together, there's nothing we can't accomplish. Mm.
0: I want to hone in for a second on that word broken. First of all, do you believe that you were broken? at that stage of your life when you look back on, knowing what you know now, would you look back and say that you were broken? I wouldn't say I was broken, but I would say I definitely thought I was a failure. Mm-hmm. So what do you think led you to believe that? Because I agree, I think a lot of young uh, you know, boys, adolescents, young men have that belief, whether it's what they come up with themselves or it's something they were told by authority figures.
1: Yeah. The failure thing. I mean, I've failed a couple of classes and I just, I grew up in a really emotionally unstable home environment. My mom was a single mom. She had four kids. My older brother had, well, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer when I was young. And so there was this always this like emotional turmoil going on in my family. So I think it was, a lot of it was unspoken at first. I just wasn't getting the love and the intention. Another way I could probably frame this is like unworthy of love or unworthy of happiness or success. And I think it started off as that. I wasn't getting the attention because my mom was so preoccupied with my brother or trying to pay the bills and all these other things. So I started to get in trouble. And that's when I started, you know, getting kicked out of school, failing classes, cussing out teachers. I started getting attention, but it was the wrong sort of attention. And that's when I started to, you know, I was I was deemed at risk. You know, I was told when I was in eighth grade that I had a mentor that saved my life. And we went on a field trip on one of our outings to the juvenile court detention center of the town where I grew up. It was a scare tactic sort of trip, like you're going to end up here if you don't get your shit together. And then after that trip, we sat in front of a judge and the judge lectured us for 30, 45 minutes. And there's three of us boys. And at the end of it, he wrapped wrapped it up and he pointed at the first boy and he said, you'll be dead by the time you turn 18, you'll be in jail. And then he pointed to the third boy and he said, you have a chance to write your own story. And so although I do think that I felt in that time that I was a failure, there's something that sparked inside of me, or at least looking back, it's clear to me that I'm here because I have a chance to write a new story, to change my life so I can be of service, so I can stand up for something larger than myself.
0: Yeah. And I think it's such an important thing to acknowledge. That's why it jumped out to me is because that that belief, especially at such a young and impressionable age, that we are broken, that we're hopeless, it doesn't really inspire much in the form of transformation and change. Some people, maybe it does, and and you, you kind of squeeze through. And you mentioned the benefit of having a mentor that essentially saved your life, right? I mean, for every one of those stories, there's probably 20 or 30 more where it doesn't go that direction, where you hear about the kid who ends up in jail or shot or some other version of that story that's just so tragic. And so on one hand, we can look at, well, the best way to ameliorate this is to go back and look at the the root cause, right? The broken family, the dysfunction in the family, the instability of the family unit. But that's a really big thing to take on. That We're talking about multi-generational, multi-lifetimes worth of work that we have to do to address that. Again, on a really big scale, right? So if we're zeroing down into the micro, because then it sounds like you got you know, somehow, course corrected onto the path of becoming a marine and going in that direction, then really finding that sense of stability and purpose that served you and supported you. What do you think? If not just for the Marines or other armed services, what do you think needs to be there for a young man coming out of similar circumstances? What is the what's like the common root of what's needed?
1: I think the two things that need are needed for young men are a coach and a calling. Now, this could be mm. something like an actual like football coach or coach at school, mm-hmm. or it could be like a life coach or sort of transformational coach, or any of these sort of things for people who are older beyond school or a mentor, of course. And then a calling is this again, the idea that something is is bigger happening here. There's a reason you're here. And it's not to just flounder and focus on yourself and live this sort mm. of superficial life. It's to move forward and realize that there are people that need you to show up, that need you to to share whatever it is that you have inside of you that only you can share. And those are the things that I think the calling gets you moving forward and pulls you out of bed. And the coach or the mentor is going to kind of help you learn from your mistakes, but keep you moving forward and and help you expedite the, shorten the
0: learning curve. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important, man. That, that idea of mentorship but also having something that calls you forward that's bigger than yourself i think archetypally that's what every every boy needs to pull him across that threshold i had a, another guest on the show probably several months back at this point a guy named johnny l sasser are you familiar with johnny have you come yeah, across I've heard of him? him yeah, yeah. okay uh, so if i'm if i'm remembering correctly he he was a green beret also a veteran and one of the things he mentioned was his transition out of the military was really jarring because the military gave him that sense of purpose. He said he got brotherhood from that. He got a sense of service, somewhere he could apply and direct all of that energy that he had, that misguided, misdirected energy into something. And then when he you know, retired from the military, there was a void or a vacancy. Did you experience that? And if not you, do you see other you know, other brothers of yours who were in the armed services going through the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I, I got out
1: of, I was in Afghanistan and October of 2010, I separated from the Marine Corps in December, basically 2010. So, like two months later, I was out and just leaving that unmistakable sense of structure and purpose and the connection to the tribe. It's no wonder why so many veterans lose their way. Another problem, I think, actually, is when you're separating from the military, you're coached into claiming as much disability as possible. And so, we have these like combat veterans coming over and learning how to be victims for the rest of their life, so they can collect a paycheck. Wow. It's something that really, I think, sets a tone. If it's not really consciously addressed by the individual veteran, if it's not addressed in that moment, then it's something that you just naturally, I think human nature, you seek. You seek the handouts, you seek the monthly stipend that you'll get, and well, you then you start isolating. And so you have all mm-hmm. those things that you may have experienced in the military. You start isolating because your brothers are spread across the country or world, and you feel like no one understands, which is, True. And then you're just looking for things outside of yourself to fill you up. So for mm-hmm. me, that that was exactly what I experienced. I started to deal with this sort of I would not even have these emotions to describe back then because there was a, a book, Iron John, that I read, and he talked about the words jumped out at me. He said, The Marine Corps builds the outer warrior or the outer shell, but neglects the inner warrior. And that was my experience because I had no idea how to navigate my inner world. I had anger, anxiety, PTSD, I was, substance abuse, all these sort of things were coming up. And I was just like scraping by at community college. But fortunately for me, I was able to go to on this volunteer trip to Lima, Peru, about two years after I got out of the service. And, you know, I went down there thinking that I couldn't wait to help these kids. I was going to work at this orphanage. I was going to go down there and help these kids. You know, I'm American, I'm a combat veteran, seeing the world, and I can just go down there and help these kids. But it was funny because, after two weeks of playing with these kids who had sticks and balls and dirt, but like the biggest smiles I'd ever seen, the happiest kids I'd ever met, it was clear they shifted something inside of me and they they changed me. And it was very clear when moving back that I was onto something with that. And again, the idea of service, it came through me. And so did the realization that I need to start challenging or questioning the the beliefs that I was told in the military growing up in the United States about, you know, us being the best or if that even matters I don't know but just like everything you need is in the United States and all this sort of stuff that I that I was preaching or, or being preached towards you know so I had to start to shed the old skin of being this you know this marine and stepping over to this other side and what really served me was challenging what I used to believe growing through that and serving in this case I started to volunteering and work with all these different troubled kids again and at these at a grief camp for kids and all these sort of things. I was a mentor and all these sort of things
0: and that's really what really served me coming out wow, man, so I need to backtrack just a little bit because you dropped some really important stuff in there and illuminated some things for me that whole piece about the Service men and women being coached to claim disability. And I don't I don't know exactly the words that you use, but the way I heard it was led to be encouraged to claim more so that you get your daily stipend and that it creates this this identity of victimhood, this practice of victimhood. That's really fascinating to me. And Obviously, if we're focusing in and zeroing in on just veterans, that's that's one conversation. But I think that that's also a greater problem for a whole generation that has been led to become very dependent on resources, on validation, on X, Y, Z from authority figures. That then we're squeezed out into the world and expected to be able to do that for ourselves. And and the thing we've been practicing all along is how do I how do I manipulate the circumstances to get what I need. And then we wonder why we have a whole generation of boys and girls, young men and women who don't know how to or don't even want to lead because we don't know how. So that was really interesting to me and how you said that that in some ways propagates more further isolation and, and a greater sense of victimhood. Obviously, that's that's something that we need to figure out how to address, because. Even just claiming disability, just what that does psychologically to somebody—the words "claiming disability." I, that word "claim" is so powerful. So mm-hmm. to to claim disability, it's it, you're literally having to tell yourself a story and change your identity. And from yep. instead of being an empowered person who's not a victim of your circumstances, it's the opposite. I'm a disabled person. I'm not able. I am not able. Just what that does psychologically, man. I mean, is there is there anything else you could say to open that up a little more? I mean, you get it right there. And I think that's the thing, you know, and there's this thing called secondary gain.
1: I work with a lot of men and women who've experienced trauma. You could say PTSD, but there's all different levels of trauma. And there is something that prevents sometimes from people releasing this trauma, because we have a process that that can just completely shut off the emotions to the traumatic memories. In like one or two sessions, I can do what 30 years of therapy can't do, because we're getting at the subconscious root of this sort of stuff. But you'll find sometimes in this work that people are, like you said, they've identified so much with this, or they have what's called the secondary gain, where if, for example, a a Marine has PTSD and he's getting 100% disability for the rest of his life, if we get rid of his PTSD, which we can, then he's not going to get his paycheck anymore. And so that's a concern. So he's still clinging on to that identity of PTSD, unwilling to surrender that and actually be free because he's... I mean, he's stuck in the past or whatever that might be, but I think you hit it right on and it is ripple out to a much wider audience. It's not just veterans. Everyone's looking for this sort of like next external fix to, to validate them, to get them moving forward. But we got to overcome that because that's where I feel like it's happening right now. A lot of people are at the mercy of the government of the world around us, and we got to come back to ourselves and be led
0: through what's coming inside of us. Yeah that concept of secondary gain, I think we're also seeing that with everything that's happened with the pandemic and the millions of people who are now on unemployment, that we've de-incentivized people from going out and taking matters into their own hands. Literally, people are making more on unemployment than they could at their nine to five jobs. So what incentive is there for somebody to go back to work, except for the fact that maybe they're just bored, but We've also solved that problem because we give people screens and technology where you can literally put your, put your brain on a vacation until it's time to go to sleep again and people don't have to do anything. And it's, when you really look at it, it's actually kind of, it could be really upsetting. It could be really depressing when you look at what we've created in just a, in just a few years. I mean, I, I'm four. I just turned 34 years old and I still remember what it was like before we had internet in the household. My younger brother, who's six years younger, doesn't remember that. So sometime in the past 30 years, the past three decades, we've gone from more of a, just kind of, I guess somewhat of an analog lifestyle to now everything we do is tapped into some sort of technology. And the motivation or incentivization to go out and to carve your path in the world, its there's almost like no... Nothing that is inspiring that anymore. I agree, Jetty. And to me, it's it's really
1: that's really scary. Everything you said is is really scary. We're disempowering the the people. And this is what I think it means to be a man, why I think it means to stand, or what it means to stand, is to stand up above the crowd and realize what's happening and ultimately carve your own path and not take that shit anymore. Because I don't know what's gonna happen with the United States. I don't know what's gonna happen as far as COVID and all these things outside of my control. But I do know that if we're going to be free and feel fully alive, then we need to wake up to that and, and not just live at the mercy of somebody who's just given us enough just to, to pay the bills and then stick our, our head in the phone or computer and be
0: distracted. I, I totally agree, man. And Moving forward from some of the other things you said about learning to navigate our inner world, the term that came to mind when you said that was emotional intelligence. I know that's also kind of a buzzword, but for me, that's just representation of connecting with ourselves. And I know for myself, I'm not a veteran. I was never in that particular industry or service industry. But what I was missing was I was just so afraid with seeing myself at a deeper inner core level. Cause I didn't like what I saw, right? I, was, I was scared of that. And the messages external of me were telling me that those parts of myself wouldn't be loved, that there was no space for them, that they were unwanted, undesired, they didn't have a place in family, they didn't have a place in society, that they, they didn't belong in a relationship. So you run out of places to put stuff and at some point it all builds up and comes to the surface. And I imagine people like veterans and servicemen and women who've gone through very traumatic events I was relatively insulated from those types of traumas, seeing people dying, witnessing people be disfigured or harmed, violence, right? Just violence, being around violence and discord in communities. That's a whole nother level of that wounding. but I think at the at a core level, there's things that we need to learn how to face off with. And I know you have a very specific modality that you've been working with. so i want to I want to hear you speak a little bit more about that. You already alluded to it, but if you could open it up a little bit more and speak to the the function that it serves and and how you've been using that with folks in similar situations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So well, I feel like it's important, Jody. if we could kind of go on and I want to talk about the fire service and what led me here today because I think it's it's sure. relevant and it'll end up here. And you know, after after the military, I did the service and I kept moving forward on this sort of idea of wanting to be a firefighter. And I was picked up in, in Mesa, Arizona as a firefighter for the first 2014. So a few years later. And you know, I had my dream job at this point. But it didn't take long until I started to realize that the vast majority of calls we're going on are mental health in nature. That's drunks and addicts in the streets to suicides and overdoses in people's homes. You know, we're seeing you know a man hanging from the rafters in his garage, and his own mom's trying to pick him up and save me, and he's not coming back. You know, and we're seeing I mean, another. I mean, these calls kind of come back to me like a a man committed suicide, and it was his his sister that found him. You know, and it's like this trauma is just being pushed off onto the people in the community around us, and it's something I saw firsthand as a firefighter, and I started to get really frustrated with the way the system treats the things, you know, the, the the way the the VA, but also just like the modern day medical system, you take people who have these deep-rooted psychological, emotional, a lot of times it's just a lack of awareness. And they put them on medications and they numb out the symptoms instead of addressing those root causes. And I started to get really fed up with it. At this point, I had been asking a lot of questions, but ultimately I well, and then in November of 2016, my best friend from the Marines died of a heroin overdose. And, you know, here I'm going on heroin overdoses and I'm thinking of my best friend, Paul, every time I go on these things and I'm like, damn, you know, something's got to give here. And this all sort of led me to start this nonprofit working with veterans and troubled kids. And I paired them up in this mentorship and, and leadership development program. And that all led in September of 2017 to me being recognized as the Arizona State Firefighter of the Year. And I spoke in front of hundreds of firefighters at the State Fire School, talked about leaving a legacy. and then not, not long after that, in October of 2017, I just completely broke down. And all the shit that I had been running from my whole life caught up with me. My older brother was getting sick of, with his cancer. He lived 22 years Is when he finally died in 2019. He had this pancreatic cancer. So it was just always this roller coaster with him. I was a machine gunner in the Marine Corps. I shot machine guns at other people. And then in October of 2017, there was that shooting in Las Vegas, Nevada, where that guy opened up on that country music concert. And, you know, I just broke down and I realized as I was the firefighter of the year and I started smoking weed at work and then having suicidal thoughts. If I didn't cut this off and find a different path, then this would be like the rest of my life. And that sent me on this sort of journey. I I ended up in June of 2018, taking a one way flight to Costa Rica. I spent all spring of 2018 selling my shit, sold my car, resigned from my my career as a firefighter and went off on this sort of journey. And I spent two years backpacking around the world. And then just by chance, I landed here in Lakeland, Florida. And this is now where all the things that I was searching for have kind of come full circle. And this process that you had talked about doing this trauma work and in, in what I believe is healing people at the root cause where all these things are stored is such a gift that we have the, the tools, whether it's these sort of neurolinguistics programming things we're working with over here, the plant medicines we use in South America. We have everything we need to heal ourselves. Each other and the world around us, and and I believe that's what this whole journey. It
0: all makes sense now. has led me here to do. I agree, man, and uh, thank you for filling in that that gap in the story because it certainly f- fills out the picture of how we got uh, how we arrived here today. I see the same thing. I see that all the resources are here, even on a, on a bigger scale. When we talk about the climate issues and some of the bigger. Topics, the hot button topics right now, we have the solutions available. It's the execution that seems to be what's problematic. So what do you think is going to make the difference between people not just having these resources and the and the solutions available, but actually implementing them? What do you think needs to happen? What needs to change? That's a good question.
1: And I think it goes back just to this cutting off on the over reliance of a system that profits from our illness and disease. And you know, I really, it was really jarring to me when I realized I looked at last month, Pfizer has made $28 billion in COVID 19 vaccinations alone this year. You know, so when I think about things that I can trust, I look if they have a credibility and if they have an agenda. And the powers that be, I don't believe can be trusted in this sort of way. And so, what I think we got to cut off the over reliance of things outside of ourselves. We got to find community and we just got to stand up for what we believe is right and realize that, like you said, everything we need is here. And so if you haven't found it yet, you just keep looking and you keep moving forward. And then you find that community, that tribe, that person that you can contribute to. So you find meaning in your life and then we can all work together and see what comes next.
0: Yeah. Thanks for letting me put you on the spot there. Cause I don't, I don't think that is a difficult question. I I asked you the question for (laughs) first, but I, I also don't know the answer myself. This is, this is a question I ask myself often is the solutions are all here. Right? I mean, there's so many different modalities we have for resolving and, and working through trauma. There's so many different ways we have alternative approaches to overcoming substance abuse, dealing with old sexual abuse traumas. I mean, you name it, right? We've got so effective solutions for it that are more than just the Band-Aid solutions you referenced before, like over-medicating people and causing them just to numb out the symptoms. But I think maybe it goes back to that concept of secondary gain that it's more motivating to just stay in the problem than it is to come out of it. I always believe that until the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of doing something different, we won't change even though it might hurt to hold on to that stuff for so long and being mired in substance abuse can be really painful until that becomes more painful than the thing you're afraid of facing off with or what you must do to move through it. There's no reason for you to do anything different. And I think that's why we continue to see such staggering statistics when it comes to male suicide and opioid dependency and and you name it, right? Is because it's still not motivating enough for people to, to want to change. And honestly, I don't know what the solution is for that. I, I can only think of my own experience and the people I've seen come out the other side of it, that at some point, um, I don't believe it has to be a rock bottom, but there has to be some sort of experience where you say, enough is enough. I'm done with this. I don't want my life to be this way. And only I could decide that for myself. As badly as my parents wanted to see me find my way at my situation, as bad as my friends and my loved ones wanted to see that, I had to make that decision for me. Nobody could want it more than me. And I think that's the the painful reality is that some people will never want it enough for themselves.
1: Yeah, it's tough. I think it's it's really tricky. Something came up for me when you were talking about this. And I think it it hits also on a point you mentioned where you asked me before about like what a what a kids need or what a men need or something like that. And I said a coach and a calling. And I think for a kid especially, it's it's love. And, you know, just some time and some attention. And as I move forward on on to your point here now, what I've gotten from people who have done, let's say, opiates or heroin is like it's like a warm blanket, you know, a hug you've never had, being held by your mom, you know. And I think the reality, the harsh reality for a lot of people around the world is they don't get the opportunity to have those base layer, that foundational love and attention that they need to thrive. And then they have no foundation from which to grow and then it however the coping mechanism you know that they find whether it's drugs or food or whatever you know comes out it's it's really tough to navigate that but i think the people that do have success are the ones that have got a taste of that got a taste of a real human connection and i think you know that's at least how i'm trying to navigate these things as i've worked with a lot of people now that have experienced some serious trauma you know one of the guys i served with in afghanistan actually just a couple of months back messaged me out of the blue and you know I hadn't heard from him in a long time and I was like hey man what's going on he said a lot and this dude was in a rehab facility he had overdosed on opiates 5 days before he said he was dead the paramedics brought him back and he reached out to me cuz he thought I could help Well he said he had PTSD we got into that a bit and he had this this sort of survivor's guilt this helplessness from seeing guys die in front of him and then he got back and there was some sort of childhood trauma that was sort of you festering beneath that. So we cleared up the PTSD and it's like, you can't think about anything else when you're in this sort of fight or flight response, when you're reliving these negative emotions and you have no emotional intelligence to navigate them. It consumes you. I mean, just the way I've shifted my life, instead of just being like, why don't you just like unfuck yourself and fix yourself? Like giving a little bit of love, giving a little bit of compassion, because a lot of these people have never experienced that. And they use mm-hmm. these drugs, these other
0: coping mechanisms to cope with that fact. Yeah, I agree. I've learned that over the years too, specifically with men. Uh, there's there's a time and a place for some of that, we'll call it tough love for lack of a better term, right? Where it's important to draw a line and say, hey, are you gonna make a stand for yourself? Because I'm tired of being the one to stand for you more than you're willing to stand for yourself. I think that's that's appropriate under certain circumstances where there's trust already built up and it's not seen as I'm abandoned. Here's not someone else who's gonna abandon you, but I'm gonna, I believe in you enough that you can stand on your own two feet now. But yeah, just a little more love and compassion. I think that's something that really bugged me about the conversation around millennials for so long. This broad stroke that millennials are entitled and overprivileged and lazy and not motivated and just looking for a free lunch. I think there's some truth to that. And I think there's definitely some fragments of that we need to resolve. But also what about the community taking responsibility for how we've raised a whole generation of people to be that way? What about the social conditions that have made it? So the helicopter parenting, the participation trophies, all all the things we introduced that create a certain psychological narrative for individuals and also looking at the greater social structure that it's all set up for the millennial generation and future generations not to be very ambitious. I think it's changing now. I think it's actually changing pretty quickly. I'm, I'm already hearing. I was just having conversations this past weekend with a couple of friends of mine who have children who are like preteens or young teens, and they're already way more industrious and ambitious than I ever was at that age. So it's. I think these cycles are are changing fast, but. But yeah, I think it's something that we all get to look at and, and take responsibility for. And it, it seems, for me at least, it seems like a very, like a colossal obstacle to tackle when I think about millions, hundreds of millions of people that we need to work with versus who can I focus on that's in my immediate community? So going back to what you were saying before and what Sebastian Younger was saying in Tribe about, I think the way through is deconstructing larger social governing structures and getting back to family and small community and village. I don't know how we do it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm in an experiment of that myself with the way I'm living my life and raising my kids in relationship with people close to me. But I'm interested to see, is that, is that something that you also believe in and that you see for yourself as you, you know, have your own family? Absolutely.
1: And I learned, just learned about this idea of parallel structures. That's how they termed it. Like you said, we can't control the, the things that are going on outside of ourselves, but we can start to create these what they call parallel structures that are, that are rising simultaneously alongside the, the system, the, whatever that means, and creating what you see is fit for those in your community. And so that's definitely on my radar. And that's, I mean, we, we had been, like I said, traveling, we gave up our old life in a way. And we're now, that's the mission we're on is, is finding community, finding our people, finding is somewhere we can contribute to. And, you know, in this sort of mutually beneficial relationship, I think that's how humans evolved. And I think that's what we need moving forward, a, a sort of coming back to our roots, like, you know, Sebastian hit on and in, in tried coming back together in community and serving each other and working together.
0: Yeah. So I'm interested for you personally. What does that look like for you?
1: Yeah, for me, you know, well, I've, I've been growing my sort of community. I'm, I'm still on this mission to find community. And where it's taken me is, is just coming back and just putting myself out there in, in different groups that I wouldn't have done before. I think, at least from my experience as a man, what I have noticed is that men tend to isolate, they go inside of themselves and they just kind of stick to what's easy and comfortable. And the Marines, they said, complacency kills, you know, and I think it's complacency in the civilian world. It's like the biggest killer of your hopes, your goals, your dreams. And so I think just by pushing yourself, pushing the boundaries, getting uncomfortable, putting yourself out in different communities and seeing what you like is just absolutely critical at this time, especially with COVID disrupting our freedoms, isolation, restrictions, and all these sort of things. I think we're really being pushed, forced in a way to come back and
0: find our people. So I'm on a mission to to do that over here as well. So before I start to move towards uh, wrapping up the conversation, is there anything else that hasn't been said yet that you haven't had a chance to express that you want to make sure you squeeze in while you have an audience of men and women who will be listening to this?
1: Well, I want to, I'm not sure if we're we're going to hit on this, so I'll just bring it up now. One thing that I am doing now is creating community out around these retreats and I've stepped into two months living in Medellin, Colombia. And it was the most dangerous city in the world in the early 90s. And it transformed to the most innovative city in the world in the 2010s. The people there are the most warm and welcoming people you ever meet. And and it's just an incredibly beautiful country that once I realized when I went there that all the news, all the media, all the sort of Netflix and narcos that you hear about this specific country, Colombia, is just not true. I mean, you could find trouble if you want it, but in general, the people there are incredibly rich and amazing, and the countryside is incredibly beautiful. And I always had this dream to start this this travel company and help people see this real and authentic way. And so, it is important for me to share that that's what I've stepped into these last last twelve months or so, coming on the edge of the or on the end of the the restrictions from COVID, is hosting these transformational travel retreats in in Colombia, and giving people a real, authentic way to experience themselves in the world. And we sit through these different using these different plant medicines that have been used by the indigenous populations native to the amazon for hundreds if not thousands of years and we work through these ceremonies and these rituals that really i feel like wake up the wake up the truth about who we are and why we're here and so i think that if anyone feels the call to to come to south america or to learn more about the, the medicines we're working with I, I think it's important to to put that out here and then of course reach out to me however you're going to do that on Instagram or via the website. But I think we are all being called to our roots in these sort of community, service, all these sort of things, ritual, all the medicines that we have available to us, everything we need to heal ourselves, each other in the world is is right here. And so if a, a retreat to Columbia sounds like something you might be interested in be sure to reach out.
0: Yeah. Awesome, man. So let's start there. We'll do it a little bit in reverse order. Where, where should people go to find that information to connect with you and yeah, just give us links, anything that's relevant to that.
1: Yeah, for sure. The best thing is action underscore Jesse on Instagram. You can find me also at action oriented.com. There's more information about the clearings of the coaching and the, um, the retreats on the website, but just say hi on uh, action underscore Jesse on Instagram and we'll, we'll take the conversation from there. Excellent, man.
0: Okay, cool. So now I just got a few lightning questions for you to wrap up here, and then uh, we can send you off on your day. So first one, what is one thing that you've learned in your life you wish you knew when you were 18?
1: I would want to pass on to my 18-year-old self that relax and enjoy this life is a gift. Beautiful.
0: And what do you think is the most important value to have as a man? Love. Love. All right. And last but not least, what do you think the world needs most from men right now? I think men are being called forward. We need to stand up from the sidelines. Mm, wonderful, man. Well, Jesse, it's been an honor to connect with you in a bigger way. I really admire and respect the work that you're doing out there. Consider me an ally in that capacity. I look forward to seeing what where we go from here, how we build off of this conversation into whatever's coming next, because I definitely, I definitely recognize the work that you're doing in this world, and it's important. So count on me for that. And I look forward to having you on here again sometime in the future so we can hear more about this amazing work, the seeds that you planted in the ground and the fruit that's coming from them down the road. Sounds good, Jetty. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, y'all. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Make sure you head over to RisingMan.org to check out the links and resources for this episode and every episode of the rising man podcast. Make sure you guys go check out Jesse and the amazing work that he's doing with the links and resources we have there. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to us and subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the rising man movement. Please give us a follow on Instagram at rising man movement. We love building our community there and sharing more of our content there with you guys. So go check it out today. Big shout out to every single one of you who are part of the rising man man community the leadership team and everybody else out there just supporting what we do what we put out into the world thank you thank you for your service thank you for your support and thank you for believing in the rising man mission until next time rise up and claim your destiny